we were in negotiations for investing in real estate. They're winning, they're making money. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Educators Podcast, where we provide the education you can build on. I am your host, Kevin Emolsch. This is a fantastic podcast, something we've never done before. We are live on YouTube. I also want to welcome you to Q3 uh, Pine Panel. We have a panel of experts today. We're going to be talking about exit strategies. And I get the question all the time, what, what is the exit strategy? In fact, Cooper in our office says, there's two exit strategies. You refinance or you sell it. Those are the only two exit strategies. <laughs> but there's quite a bit more to it than that. Short-term rentals, long-term rentals, fix and flips. We're going to talk about some new development projects or new development lots. I think Scott's going to talk a little bit about that. So how do you make money in real estate, specifically in Denver, in today's market? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. I want the let the panelists introduce themselves first, and then we're going to get going with some questions. So, Nicole, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Hi, my name's Nicole. Um, I work for Castle and Cook Mortgage. I've been there about eight and a half years. I think most people know Joe Massey. Um, he's our senior loan officer, and our specialty is permanent residential financing. So we'll be able to help with your primary, second home, investment, um, permanent financing. So not so much the fix and flip, but anytime you want to buy and hold, we'll be able to help and support. Hi there, I'm Chantal, and I am the owner of Good Neighbor Realty. Um, we're a brokerage that specifically works with short-term rental investors. I'm also a short-term rental investor, which just basically means I own properties that are rented on Airbnb and Verbo and platforms like that. Hello, my name is Scott Kraft. I am a loan officer with Pine Financial Group. I am also a, an active real estate investor myself. I am a real estate broker. And I've been doing, had, I've had my hand in real estate investing, whether it's fix and flips or new ground up construction or hard money or real estate brokerage since 2010. So got a pretty well-rounded background in this business. Okay. And my name is Kevin Emolsch. I'm the founder of Pine Financial Group. So Pine Financial is a private money lender in mostly Colorado and Minnesota. We also do business in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C., um, about 20, a little over 2,400 transactions over the last 15 years. Okay, so let's get started here. I am dying to know, we just got the CPI report recently. Inflation's finally coming down. Um, so, hey. yay. <laughs> Stock market <laughs> rallied, right? So I'm curious, with the market, how it's been so shaky and the inflation's so sticky and how aggressive the Fed has been, what are you guys seeing from your clients or what are you seeing for your own personal investments? We certainly saw a little bit of a slowdown, um, but it's steady. I mean, people are still finding deals for investments. Individuals are still wanting to purchase their first home and they're able to do it because they have professionals with them, real estate agents that are able to walk them through um, the best way to purchase. I'm seeing more creativity from our clients. So I'm seeing people want to offer creative financing deals. Um, I'm seeing people want to do things like buy down rate or, um, you know, get significant concessions from a seller. And then I'm just seeing um, 
I think a little bit more time in analyzing the deals because the stakes are higher. Um, purchase prices are around the same and interest rates are significantly higher. And so there's just more time to make sure that it's really going to work. A little bit on that. I think I would strongly agree with that because borrowers are very much into the 2-1 buy down or coming to terms with the fact that interest rates are higher and accepting a monthly payment. Years ago, when I started, a buyer would come to me and say, max payment, $1,000. And now people are saying, I'm comfortable with four to $5,000 monthly, um, which is a massive shift in just culture and people accepting, you know, everything's different financially. And I'd like to touch on that as well. I think that one of the things that and buyers are finally realizing is prices are not going to crater. So if they want to buy a home, if they want to stop renting, they're going to have to just deal with that high payment if they can qualify and then refinance once the rates do come down. Uh, there's the old adage that every real estate broker likes to say that you marry the house and you date the rate because you're in the house for long term. You're not necessarily in that mortgage for the long term. And back to the original question that was posed, um, I think that the biggest thing that, you know, short-term real estate investors are seeing, fix and flip buyers, for instance, is it's just taking more time to get through a pro through the process. Um, not only because of rates, but also, you know, the supply chain is still crazy. Inflation on everything else is crazy. So contractors are expecting higher payments. They might be looking for better deals with contractors. Just everything's taking longer, especially the sales process on some deals. I mean, there are still lots of properties that are going in the first weekend if you price it right, but lots and lots are not, which we have not seen in the last number of years. I think in the past couple months, I've seen a big shift in all parties working together to eight months. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to this because I I love what I'm hearing about the timing and how long it's taking. We're seeing that with our loan product. It's, mm -hmm. it's taking a little longer to pay off. But you mentioned a two one buy down in your answer. Can you help us understand what that means? Yep. So a two one buy down is when the seller gives a three percent concession towards the borrower's closing costs. So we'll use round numbers for ease. Three percent of the purchase price is what the seller would give in concessions. Year one, your interest rate is we'll say four. Year two, your interest rate is five. Year three through 30, your interest rate is six. So what it does is ease buyers in to the higher mortgage payment to where it's a little bit more manageable, but they are very much aware that years three through 30, their payment is going to be fixed. So it's a fixed loan all through all 30 years, but it just adjusts year one, two, and three. And you're seeing the sellers pay for this? Correct. Okay, so Contracts are coming through with eighteen dollars to $25,000 in seller credits. So me as a real estate investor, if I'm going to make an offer on a property, I could ask for this as part of that offer. Mm -hmm. So that's a concession. And we always like to say a concession is a bribe. It's a legal bribe to buy the house. <laughs> We weren't seeing those for a long time. So Chantel, what are, are you seeing these in your transactions? Is concessions starting to become the norm again? I would say they're becoming the norm. And so it's not, um, today I offered 
on a property with 25K concession, another one with 40K concession, another one with 50K concession, all at different price points. Um, so it's the norm because rates are higher. And I would say that this is for properties that are not getting a lot of activity immediately. So all the properties that I had clients offering on today were properties that had sat on the market through the first weekend. And with that, the seller understands like, Hey, it didn't sell the first weekend. Why? Well, maybe it's because of rates. And so with that, the seller has an understanding that in order for someone to make the price work, that there is going to need to be a concession. And I've seen that with, with builders of new, new construction a lot. I haven't seen that a ton with the existing uh, inventory, but so you're seeing it. Is there any limits on what lenders are willing to uh, allow as a concession? Yep, absolutely. So seller concessions, you do have a max. So um, obviously dependent on down payment and loan program. So in a general rule, I would say 3% on primary is 2% on investment. So, and so you're saying a $40,000, $50,000 concession. They're expensive homes. Expensive homes. <laughs> when you said those numbers, I was like, whoo. Are those, for, are those Airbnb type? They are. They are. Uh, okay, let's go there. I got you. <laughs> what are they buying? Um, so a lot of my clients are purchasing luxury short-term rentals. And I think that um, the environment right now is really shifting towards a high quality product. And the reason that I have clients who are investing in these higher end short-term rentals is because ultimately the saturation is a lot less. So, you know, a lot of people can purchase a investment property or a second home in the median price points. But once you get into that million to 2.5 range, the amount of people that can qualify for that in particular as an investment property or a second home really goes down. And there's really strong demand for these luxury stays, particularly ones that can accommodate a lot of people. And so these luxury stays are renting for between $1,000 to $2,500 a night. They have strong occupancy rates and there's low competition because the people who have historically owned these homes we're not purchasing them necessarily as investments. These were vanity purchases. They were second homes. And then they decided to throw it up on Airbnb and Verbo. But now what we're seeing is a sophisticated investor coming into this space, investing in good furnishing, investing in good photography, and really dominating that market sector. Okay. So if we're using the lower end there, $1,000 per night, you're not booked 30 nights in a month. So... Is there profit? Are you seeing these are profitable? Yeah. So I actually have two homes that um, are mountain properties personally as investments. And so I can speak to this. So on a higher end home, you're going to maybe see a little bit lower of an occupancy rate. I would say healthy occupancy rate is typically between 55 and 80%. Um, I, both of my properties are mountain properties here in Colorado. One is in Evergreen, one is in Blackhawk area. And they're, one is renting for between $700 and $900 a night, whereas the other one is renting for $900 to $1,500 a night. Um, one will probably gross about $160 in revenue this year, the other one about $250. Um, and we can dig into the net at some point too. Okay. No, thank you for that. So before we get too far away from you, Scott, I want to come back to the timing uh, so months of inventory is creeping up. Months of inventory, I love that statistic because it accounts for supply and demand in one number. Um, 
typically four-ish months of inventory is pretty neutral. That means nobody's got an advantage, buyers, sellers, even playing field. Um, it's creeping up. So I think Denver right now is one seven. Um, parts of parts of the uh, the metro are over two months of inventory. Now we haven't seen that in years. So how long are you seeing properties sit on the market? Fix and flips. I think so much of that really just comes down to the individual flipper and their broker and whether they price it correctly. If it's priced correctly, it's gone in a weekend. One of the things that I know a lot of brokers and a lot of flippers are doing to get it priced correctly is not going higher than the highest comp in the neighborhood, even though they might be the nicest house. They're not going over that. They might even come in under that. And all of a sudden, that's going to create a lot of buzz because buyers are aware of what houses are selling for in that neighborhood. And all of a sudden, you get 10 people in there, six of which fall in love with the house. You might get five offers. And all of a sudden, they're fighting against each other in order to get that under contract. You're not going to see concessions. You're going to see it gone in a week, a weekend. That answer your question? Yeah. And then, you know, something that I've noticed in the two decades I've been doing this is when you get greedy and you do price it above, then it sits on the market for a little while and it it actually hurts the value. You want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I've seen this time and time again. I, I Like I said, I'm a realtor as well. And so I do a few deals outside of my own where I will list properties for friends or family or you know, past clients, that sort of thing. And I've recently had one where the seller just felt super bullish on his property and it sat for a couple months and has not sold. And, you know, he, he kind of sees what, what Zillow says the house is worth, but won't take into consideration other aspects. And I think that that is just hurting him even more, much like you said, the longer it sits, the less desirable it is. There's no buzz about it. Fewer people even see it because the way that a lot of realtors will look for houses is they'll look for what just came on the market today, what's been on the market for the last week. So if you've been on longer, it's really tough to drive client, to drive buyers to that house. Yeah, so if you take nothing away from tonight but this one, trust me, when you go through a softer market, the strategy is price it low and have a comp competition and kind of bid that up don't go high and hope it's going to come down because it's not going to happen. Okay. Had to get that out there. Um, so is there any questions in the room or are we seeing anything on YouTube yet? And I don't even know if I mentioned this. For those of you watching on YouTube, you're welcome to ask questions. I think you just put it in the comments. Is that how you do it? Just put it right in the comments and Callie behind the, I keep looking at her behind the camera is going to tell me what they are. I'll repeat them into the mic and then we'll have our panel answer that. So are there any questions at this point? Okay. So in the price point of $1,000 to $2,500 a night, what is the average amount of time that they stay in the property? Um, and I would say based off of Colorado, and I'm going to be hyper local to Colorado, um, you're going to see between a two night minimum and a five night stay. So we probably average somewhere around four nights, but that also depends on where in Colorado. If you're in a mountain town, you're going to see a little bit of a longer stay just because it's more of a track for people. Whereas when you're in the Metro, it's more transient. And so you might see shorter stays two to three nights. Yeah, did that, did that answer the question? Yes, thank you. Great. 
Yes. It's for you again. Um, what is the average ROI that you're seeing for short-term rentals today? ROIs. Um, so the question was, what is the average ROI that you're seeing for short-term rentals today? Um, and I think it kind of depends on how you measure ROI. For some people, they're looking at cash on cash return. For some people, they're just looking at cash flow. Um, most of our people are looking for about a 15 to 20% cash on cash return. Um, that's a metric that we hear a lot. I would say for a single family home purchase, most people want to gross between 15 and 20% of the purchase price. So to make numbers easy, if you're looking at a million dollar property in today's rate environment to make money, you're to be looking at wanting to earn between 150 and 200,000 a year, um, which will net, depending on down payment, anywhere from 30,000 to 80,000 on a single family home purchase. Yeah, ROI, return investment. Uh, just to clarify, how am I seeing the return on investment? Yeah. Long-term rentals, you expect them to be rented 12 months out of the year, right? You expect them to constantly be occupied. Short-term rentals, it's not the same with. So I haven't really dug into the differences between them on a per night basis. I can tell you, you're definitely going to have a better ROI with a short-term. So if you can keep that rented very consistently, you're going to do very well. Perfect timing. The property manager is here. Hey, hello. I, I am. My name is Rachel Rubin. I'm from High Property Management. Um, I don't know I, what else do you want to know about me, but I have a small um, property management company. I do primarily um, residential, long-term residential, since we are talking about that. And I have some um, strip malls, some small commercial spaces as well. I don't know much about midterm. I know it's over 30 days. I think someone else would probably be better at this one. Uh, I mean, for midterm, mostly if you're going to have that, it's usually going to be like visiting nurses programs, things like that, where people are looking specifically for like 13 weeks and anything over about 30 days is where you hit that, um, which then you're not required to have those short term rental licenses and stuff. But if you're doing something like that, you just need to make sure you have the right area of town. If you're going to do like visiting nurses are going to want to be near the hospitals, things like that. You also want to make sure they often have like a huge giant house will only work if they're working with more than one person. They're traveling by themselves often. Maybe they have a pet or something, but they don't need five bedrooms um, for one person unless they can kind of do it together. So it depends on the property too, on how well the fit is, if that helps. Typically we see midterm rental earn about 1.5 times what you would expect from a short-term rental. Um, but there is vacancies um, within midterm rental too, and obviously more vacancy than what you would see from long-term rental. Um, we've seen people also partner with insurance companies. So people that are displaced because of an insurance um, claim or from a natural disaster. Um, I have someone with a property in Littleton and they had a contract from insurance for $45,000 for nine months and the insurance company just paid it all up front. So they could be lucrative if you get connected with insurance companies, but it doesn't accidentally happen often. There is strategy to that. I want to touch on that 1.5 times. So to make sure I understood this correctly, 1.5 times, so one and a half times, you said income, I think was the word you used, over a short-term rental. So you're talking about we're not revenue. Long You're talking about oh, over long term. Okay, long -term. that makes sense. It's, it's not going to make as much. As short -term. That makes yeah. The short term seems like would make more. That's why I was confused. I'm glad I clarified that. Yeah. 
Okay, anything else to add to the um, ROI or returns on midterm rentals? What's more popular, midterm or short-term? In my world, short-term. I have a client that um, got connected with a soccer team or like a soccer organization and she crushes it with <laughs> midterm rentals, crushes it. How'd she do that? No We're idea. trying to know. And she actually wouldn't say. She was like, I'm not telling anyone. <laughs> she which, which soccer club? Yeah. Who is impressive? Okay, so if we're going to do a long-term rental, if we're going to do a mid-term rental, if we're going to do a short-term rental, we have to have the permanent uh, financing in place for it. Um, and a lot of times we we put it, put in a, a strategy much shorter than you know a thirty year like long term play right yep. you might want to upgrade to a, a bigger house after a couple of years of operating a short term rental so what kind of strategies are you seeing your clients use Nicole with uh, short term rental financing so everything we're doing is permanent which is going to be greater than is that what you were asking yep. like permanent financing um, most of our clients are. I mean, investor, they want to hold it for the long term. But as far as like exit strategies, is that what you're kind of? Well, let's say I'm I'm, I'm going to do a short term rental, but I know in three years I want to upgrade to a, a bigger property. Maybe it's an evergreen. Yep. So with a short term rental, what we have to do is use whatever the appraiser values the current market condition for rents. We will not be using the short term rental that you desire over the next couple months. Everything will be based on what the appraiser states market conditions. And we talked shortly about DSCRs right before we hit live. So tell us what a DSCR loan is and how that comes into play here. Yep, so no tax returns. No tax returns with DSCR loans. Um, everything is payment-based. So um, whatever your net income is over your payment is how your loan is structured. So very, very popular among a lot of investors who just don't want to show tax returns. I'm not sure why people like to hide it, but they do. They don't like to show them. <laughs> DSCR, debt service coverage yep. ratio. It's based on the income of the property more than the income, as yep. Nicole was saying, of exactly. the borrower. So, Chantel, you were asking her about this. What are you seeing in, D in the DSCR space? Her mind. That's, that's changed <laughs> quite a bit with the rates going up. Yep. Yeah, we, don't, we don't see it nearly as often. Yeah, so people will use DSCR loans, in particular, my clients at least, when they're maxed out on their debt to income. So let's say that you own other properties, and now all of a sudden you want a short-term rental property then you might consider a DSCR loan because you're not going to qualify for a normal investment loan. DSCR loans are more expensive. They're typically at least a point, sometimes two points higher than what you can get from a conventional loan product. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we were talking about, you know, how to qualify through DSCR. I've seen a lot of different things. You introduced something new to me. You said that, you know, you can even show negative cash flow Correct. on a DSCR. Correct. Um, I've also seen people that will use um, a special appraisal company to use short-term rental revenue. It's very niche um, for DSCR, but it is, it is possible. Okay. So the question was, how does it affect your, having an ADU, how does that affect your options and does it affect the value? This is actually really interesting timing because we were talking about this on our sales call today. So, okay, I bought a house with an ADU one time and 
I looked at it as a phenomenal investment because I was going to live in the front house and I was going to rent the back house and the back house was going to basically pay my mortgage. So I looked at the back house from a perspective of valuing it as, okay, what's the income? And we'll just discount the, the cash flows from it. So I said, this has got to be worth. And this was a time where, I mean, it was 10 years ago, maybe. And I bought the house in the $250,000 range. And I was saying, this back house has got to be worth a hundred grand all on its own. The appraiser came in there and says, mm, yeah, that's cool. You got that back there, but we can't really value it like a standalone house because it's all just part of this house. And I said, but it's going to pay for my mortgage. That has serious value. And they said, no, we're just going to add that to the square footage of the main house. And that's how the appraiser valued it. I don't know exactly how appraisers are valuing those today, but I think that to an end buyer, it's worth a lot more than it would be potentially to an appraiser for just those reasons I, I discussed. It's, it is a lot of income that you could get every single month to help with your mortgage. So ADU, uh, additional accessory units. Accessory dwelling Access, units. Accessory dwelling units, which is an extra property that's not considered a multifamily, but it's a multifamily. Uh, I have a hot take on ADUs. Hot take. I, I do. Um, so I built an ADU a couple of years ago. And what I learned from it is they can be a great source of additional revenue. I still have it. It still makes like 50000 as a short-term rental today. But they are really expensive. And is it a better use of your finances to build an ADU or to buy another property and have someone else pay down your mortgage? And I think that that ultimately, you know, is dependent on your goals. Um, but for me, I kind of wish instead of putting 100K into my ADU, I would have just bought another home with 100K and have a fully separate mortgage being paid down by someone else. That's fantastic. Now you said you uh, went to zoning and I've got a story about that. So I want to hear what you say. I know a little bit about it, so I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but um, in some situations they're difficult to finance. Um, and a lot of it comes down to the county and how it's zoned and how the property description is is labeled. So sometimes they're difficult and other times if you know how to navigate the county and the zoning, it becomes easier. I, I have one realtor that's fantastic at it and she's a shark. So she goes and gets it. But I'd like to touch on that just a little further. Yeah. So let's just take Denver, for instance. Mm -hmm. I know Denver's zoning very, very well. And they differentiate between an accessory dwelling unit and a, um, oh gosh, how, why am I drawing a blank on this? A tandem house. So an accessory dwelling unit is accessory but they also have zoning where you can put in what they call a tandem house. Tandem can be separate. So that means it can be a primary house as well. So specific zoning zone areas have like two unit, like for, for instance, there's ETUC. That's TU stands for two unit. So that means you can put two separate units on there, each one of them being a primary residence and they could then be sold separately to separate people. When you're talking about an ADU, that has got to always run with the primary house and whoever lives in, whoever owns it 
must live in one of those two units. Otherwise, you're violating a zoning code. So as far as picking up rentals, and I know that this varies between counties and cities, but I only know Denver really well. But it's just one of those things you really have to pay attention to the zoning when there's two separate houses on one line. So Chantel in Denver, you have to have your, it has to be a primary home to rent it for under 30 days. So if we're, if we're short term, does this get around that? I mean, you could rent an ADU. Yes. So you can rent an accessory dwelling unit in Denver for under 30 days, but there are some stipulations. You can't live. I have a lot of clients that want to live in the ADU and rent out the main home because you could make more money doing that. And Denver County in particular has stated that they will not allow that. And then also the the property has to be legally zoned for an ADU. We'll see sometimes, you know, there's an outbuilding that was converted from a garage. And if it's not legally zoned as an ADU, Denver will not allow you to get a short-term rental license on it. But that was basically saying very similarly that you can have the short term on those properties. Um, yeah. And it's the, all the rental licensing do not get stuck in Denver with an Airbnb option that you do not have it done properly because they'll make a you know statement with that. But um I forgot the last thing I was going to say. What about, about a midterm rental? Can we get around that licensing rule if we're doing 30 days or more? Uh, there's yeah, no specific different. licensing for 30 days oh. or more. So that's just considered anything over 30 days is more than short term. So, so I, it doesn't have to be my primary home. No, I mean, I don't. Yeah. I, it, it's yeah. It might have that rule where you have to have living in the primary one, but not in terms of it being a short term. You could totally do that as a midterm on the ADU also. When you want to refinance out of a hard money loan. How do you prepare? Um, number one, talk to me before you take the hard money loan out to make sure I can get you out of the hard money loan. Um, breaks my heart when people call after they're in the hard money loan and they have no options to exit out of the property. Um, that's usually super difficult and we usually have to get pretty creative. Um, when you, um, let's say for example, you purchase the property with Pine hard money loan, um, the second the property is ready for an appraisal is when we can get started on the refinance and pay off the hard money loan. So there's no seasoning in there. You can immediately, once the property is ready for an appraisal, we can get started on the refinance. Just to add to that, that's a really good piece of advice to make sure you're pre-qualified before you take out the hard money loan. Such a good piece of advice. We actually require that. So if someone's going to buy a house, do the burr investment method, we want to see that they are pre-qualified for that takeout financing before they buy the house with our hard money loan, just so they do not get in that type of trouble. Okay, while we're on this permanent loan, I'm going to come right back to you. While we're on this permanent loan, a lot of people like to deed their properties, short-term, mid-term, and long-term into entities. What's the advice around deeding it into an entity before they talk to you? Um, everything we do, we will close in your individual name. So um, purchasing into an LLC would be considered a commercial loan. Um, and everything we do is permanent residential financing. So you can purchase the property in your individual name and then do what you want with the property afterwards. We might ask our attorney what his advice is on that. Before the... 
I'll start with the first question, which is how do you purchase a $500,000 house with a high interest rate where it's only going to rent for a lower amount than your mortgage payment? Um, Most of my clients, what I've noticed is they are getting creative. So what they're doing is if they want to purchase something in the 500 range, they are renting room by room. Okay, so a thousand, a thousand, a thousand, a thousand, they're getting five to six thousand for a single family home, right? So tradition, or they'll do up and down, right? 2,500, 2,500. So looking for units that are intentionally, that are already split, that already have that makeup that make it sense or make sense for renters, right? You have renter A that enters through the front of the home, renter B who enters through the back of the home. Does that help? Okay. I've got a bit of a question about that. Does zoning affect that at all? Do they look at that as... I work for a mortgage company, okay. not the county. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yes. I, I do feel like I have looked. There's a whole company called Hot Pads that specializes in doing it room by room. And I feel like I specifically looked up Denver um, laws. And if you have one property, you can only have one active lease at a time, even if it's separate bedrooms. I did not look at that in the past few weeks or the past few months, but in the past year. And that's what I recall. So most of these clients are primary residents. So they're house hacking, right? So they're living at the property and then renting it out to their buddies. So that's possibly how they're getting around it is because it is a primary. Okay. And I'm sorry, the second part of your question about margins, frankly, for us, we haven't increased our rates at all. Um, I do know that there are other hard money lenders out there who have. Um, We are still actively trying to drop our rates. So just the way that we are capitalized is different from how the standard traditional conventional lenders are. They are much more subject to interest rate increases by the Fed than we are because we're primarily private money. I'm going to, I'm going to try here. So I get this question frequently, maybe one a week or so. Like, why are we not raising our rates and why aren't we paying our investors more money because the environment is dictating that? Well, we, we pay our investors a flat 8% return, right? That's very consistent. You're going to get it. Um, And then we loan it out at 12. So that's how we make our money is there's that margin there, that spread that you're the margin you're talking about. We have made the business decision not to raise rates because we want to cherry pick the best, safest loans in an environment where it's a little uncertain. So instead of raising rates and trying to keep up with the same quality of loans we've always done, we're increasing quality because capital preservation is priority one. I'll speak on my side. I don't know about Pine. Do you require an appraisal? Yeah, we we want an appraisal. And this is one of the risks we're doing the Burr strategy. So if I can get this one right. Buy, rehab, refinance, repeat. Rehab, yeah, all yeah. those R's, right? Rent. I rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Yeah. I have to write down how many R's and like each R something. Um, so the strat, the one of the risks in that strategy is if to look. I say this all the time. Real estate is the only commodity that's not free. It's not a free market. And the reason for that is because of appraisals. Okay, all that is is somebody's opinion of value. So that opinion can actually change the value. Even if you have a willing buyer and a willing seller, somebody else that isn't involved in the transaction can literally change the value of that property. Um, real estate's the only commodity that I know does that. But that here's where the risk is. Now you're saying there's one opinion of value, which is our appraisal, 
And then Nicole's going to have to get her own appraisal. And that person's opinion may be a little bit different. So if it comes in lower on your end, it could be a cash-in refinance, we call it, right? Mm -hmm. You have to actually bring money to the table to get, yep. get that done. So that's one of the risks with the Burr strategy. You'll need two. Yeah, you'll need two. You need one for the hard money, one for, uh, the for refinance. Them. Now, sometimes we can get the same appraiser. Well, some uh, appraisals are typically good for six months. So if you go quick... Maybe we can use that one, <laughs> you know, use the same one. That's always an option because I know that's tough to have to pay for two appraisals for the same property. Yeah, and, and ours is uh, subject to, so it's subject to completion. <clears throat> Yours is current as is. Yep. So all the photos are going to have to be updated and everything. Yeah. Because uh, you need nice They would photos, have to go not... back out there then. Yeah. 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 Because it's going to be a completely different property yep. from what you see to what I see. Yep. Okay. So I have more questions. I keep going. Um, I wanted to ask Rachel, there's a lot of, there's a lot, I'm getting a lot of emails about all the changes with rental properties. And this one with pets has got me a little confused. Can you, what are some of the changes you're seeing with uh, legislation and how it's hurting landlords? Specifically with pets, there's a lot of legislation right now. Well, about the big everything. one where you, is you have to approve them and then you limit how much you could charge and there's no more uh, non-refundable deposits, everything has to be refundable. Oh, that yeah. One. Oh, okay. So um, you don't have to approve unless it is a service animal or an emotional support dog or cat or whatever it happens to be. If it is one of those categories, you um, you do have to approve even if you say no pets in the property. Um, if it also falls into those, you also may not charge any pet deposit or pet fee. Don't call it pet rent because if you have multiple rents in your thing, it's gonna it can throw things off with the legislation, how you can only raise rent once a year and what can be called rent versus what can be just additional fees. So they did just recently pass legislation to limit how much additional rent you can charge for a pet as opposed to a service animal. So I believe offhand it's 35 and the deposits are also they're correctly they, they are still deposits. They are not just a fee. So if I think there's a max on that one too. Don't quote me on this because I don't keep numbers in my head very well, but I think it's 250 on the deposit max now. So I used to have a 250 per animal um, deposit and now it's 250 max entirely on what you can charge. Um, and I would just suggest if you have people with um with service animals, things like that, there um, there are outside screenings. Like I have a company that screens pets for me where I don't have to get involved with the tenant saying, no, this is my emotional support, whatever. They go out, they check the letters, they talk with the doctors. It's as good as the system can be knowing that there are a lot of like companies out there just willing to sell doctor letters and they're a legit letters. So it's only as, as good as it can be, but um, it at least is making sure that the tenant is, is doing what they can and is on top of it. Okay. Anything else on the legislation side? I just saw an email today. I haven't even read it yet. Something like there's a, a proposed national rent control or something. There's a lot of legislation. Um, rent control. I haven't seen about the national one. I don't think that's going to go anywhere right now. There is also every year though in the Colorado legislature, they put it up for rent control and it gets, it has not passed yet. So we are not at that point, but they have also put a ton, a ton of restrictions on all kinds of things. I feel like some of the bigger things I've seen is that we are already required to take Section 8 vouchers. So you cannot discrimination discriminate on which um, kind of income you're looking at. So if somebody has Section 8, it counts like anything else and you have to accept it. They also, as of August 8th, are saying that if they have a, a voucher or a subsidy of any kind, you cannot do a credit check on that person. You cannot take into account their credit. So basically, if they have a Section 8 
or any other kind of voucher, you are required. I mean, you can do a background check for criminal history, things like that, but you cannot take credit into consideration. So we used to accept check section eight as long as they qualified under every other marker. Now you cannot, um, you cannot consider credit in those situations. So that has been one big change also. What if it's half section eight subsidized and half they have to pay their own rent? Um, it, any subsidy. And they did not even specifically say Section 8. It is listed as any subsidy very vaguely. Uh, you also cannot require any more than two times income for anybody now, Section 8 or um, any property. They have max that you can say that your income is max of two times what the rental rate is. You cannot say three times or anything higher than that, anybody anymore in the state. Okay, so that two times, that's interesting because that would mean it's a debt-to-income debt to ratio of 50 are you approving debt to income ratios at 50 in the mortgage world? Lower insurance? Get some lower insurance. 49.99. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I have thought about it. So he has the question. He's they've, they've got a big property. And as if I'm in the interest in sometimes moving into the long term or short term market um, as property management. Um, and I think just for me personally, um, right now I'm a pretty small, I'm a pretty small business and to do, um, short term, you have to have a lot of more on staff. Like you have to have 24 seven maintenance. You have to have practically your own cleaners on, on staff to send them out as often as they need. And like the maintenance thing, I, I just give the example that like one time we were in the mountains and my kids locked the bathroom door from the outside and I like could solve that if I was home. I searched the entire house for something to unlock that stupid door and I could not get it unlocked. I had to call, I felt so bad, but I had to call the maintenance company and they were great. And they sent somebody out that night to come fix it for us at like 8 p.m. And they smiled about it. And if I was to do it, I would want that kind of service. Just knowing that that's the guy, you know, you're putting people in a house with like nothing for resources wise. Um, and so for me personally, when I'm at a point where I feel like I could take that on, I would consider it, but um, it's a lot more hands-on. Um, and just in terms of investing, you'll end up paying a lot more for management for those just because of all of the extra, you know, it's turning over constantly. But that's, I don't know if you're asking me personally, but that's my personal take on What do you see in Chantel for pricing for management companies? Typically, property management here is going to be between 20 and 25%. Um, there are some lower entry points, like larger companies like Evolve, for instance, does 10%. They do make up for it in having their own um, cleaning team. And so they'll kind of make profit off of the cleaning team that they have as well. Um, but just to kind of piggyback off what you're saying. So I self-manage all of my properties and I totally agree. If you were to become a short-term rental manager at scale, you're going to need a lot of resources. Um, a lot of our operators do self-manage because so much of it can be automated. So I probably spend an hour a week per listing managing it myself because I'm I put a lot of work up front. So I did automated messages. I found a great cleaning team. They automatically see when we have bookings. Um, I have handymen that will go out and check the properties. And so short-term rental is a lot of work up front, but if you do it right, it should be manageable once you put it into your systems. Can you tell us a little bit more about your portfolio? You, you said there are two uh, mountain houses, but you have stuff in town also? 
Yeah. So I have a property um, just Northwest of Denver. So it's a Denver address, but it's Adams County, um, which is basically the wild, wild West. And we love it. Um, And then the next one is in Wheat Ridge. The reason that I purchased that was because they were putting a cap on the number of short-term rental licenses that were going to be available. So one of the biggest things in investing in short-term rentals is understanding the legislation and navigating it and knowing when it's really going to help you. So Wheat Ridge said, we're only going to allow for 2% of single family homes to be used as short-term rentals. So I jumped on that opportunity knowing that there was really high demand for that area, but now they're limiting saturation. Um, that also drove my purchase decision in Blackhawk, which is a mountain community. They also came out with a 2% cap. So I purchased out there. And then um, I also purchased an Evergreen, which has legislation um, that will likely be changing in the next year. Okay, thank you. Was that helpful? Yes. For real estate investors that are looking to add to their portfolio, how many exit strategies do you anticipate or recommend that they have? How many options should they have to get out of the hard money? Frankly, I don't want to sound like Coop in our office, but they really have two options. (laughs) Sell the property or refinance it. Yes. So, okay. So you can look at your different options. If you're going to hold it, if you don't want to sell it, or if you can't sell it and you are either stuck owning it or you're going to take a loss, but you can still refinance it. You can, your options are basically to do a long-term, a short-term or a mid-term rental on it. And I think that so much of that comes down to the individual investor's personality, what they can tolerate, and how much time they want to spend involved in that property. I think the biggest thing I would ask is, what are your goals? What are your short-term goals? What are your long-term goals? Get those established, because once those are established, you will be able to answer that question better yourself, right? Because ultimately, it's up to the individual investor. But knowing if you're going into this property, knowing it's a long-term hold, that monthly cash flow isn't very important. That's a good thing to know because that helps us structure your loan and suggest the best loan program for them. So, I mean, I would look at what do you want to do short-term, long-term, establish those goals, and then it'll basically answer themselves. Yeah, I'm just going to add just a tad to that. We were just looking, Danielle was just looking at doing a, a fix and flip, and then it turned into a scrape. Was that When we ran the numbers, it was going to have to be a scrape to make it work. And then when you start getting into a project like that, you really only have one exit strategy, and that's drop the price. Uh, you're not going to keep a million-dollar house, unless I guess unless you maybe uh, short-term rental it, but if, if it's not allowed in that specific area, you can't do that. So what we're seeing some of our clients do is buy properties with multiple exit strategies. And what I mean by that is buy a property that to fix and flip in a market, you could rent it if you had to. So that's, that would be one idea. That's a good question. So I, the question was, have I noticed in decrease in demand for short-term rentals since the rates have increased 
for investors in particular. Um, my people who are buying short-term rentals, I think the game has changed ultimately. So in 2019, 2020, you could put up a property for rent. You could take photos with your iPhone and you could rent it and it was going to be easy. Um, today in 2023, a lot has changed. So A, the consumer um, appetite has increased. And so consumers for Airbnb and Verbo have a higher standard that they're looking for. B, they have more options. There's more short-term rentals on the market. And so if you're going to enter into this space, you need to be entering it as a professional. And so you need to buy the right type of property. You need to furnish it well. You need to market it well. Um, something that I say is that like short-term rentals are 50% real estate investing and 50% digital marketing, because ultimately why is someone picking your property over another one? And so I am working with different clients than what I used to three years ago before anybody could get into short-term rental and do really well. My clients now are savvy, they're well-educated and they're prepared to be some of the top performing, um, investors in the space. I love that question. What, with all the hype around short-term rentals, and this maybe you can answer this as well. I'm just curious because it, the demand the demand was there, and then the supply was there. But it feels like maybe there's been some saturation because of how you know Bigger Pockets is telling everyone to do it. Mm -hmm. So, are you seeing uh, vacancy numbers change at all? Yeah, we have seen um, what I would say a moderate correction in the short-term rental space. There was a really scary tweet um, that someone posted not that long ago that said short-term rentals are down like 40%. Um, in reality, the average is down 4%, but you know, the people that are hurt by that the most are people with very average properties. Um, people that are not being as imp impacted by that are people that are doing it right. And they have properties that are standing out online, um, and they're still performing very well. Um, I don't think I have much to say to that, but I've seen the same stats that they're, they're definitely going down. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I saw the exact same thing. It's not as much as I think people are talking about. And I think it really depends on the area that you are looking in as well. Um, if you're in a great tourist spot, great. If you're in a place that like maybe it was nice during COVID when nobody could go anywhere, but now that we can, everybody's kind of traveling again. So like they might not just want a house in the suburbs with a pool to play in because that was great during that moment, but it might not be so much what people are looking for now. So. I was listening to a podcast, um, not nearly as good a podcast as this one, but... <laughs> And what did that podcast say? The podcast said they think that more inventory might, because everyone's wondering where the inventory is going to come from. And, and they suggested maybe short-term rentals because the demand, uh, demand is, not the demand's going down, but the inventory has gone so high that it's not as profitable. So for whatever that's worth. Yeah. So she asked when thinking about purchasing a short-term rental, what criteria to consider? So number one is always going to come down to legislation. It would be horrible to buy a property that you intend on operating as a short-term rental that you can't do. The next is, you know, price point versus expected revenue. So, you know, for instance, if you're buying a million dollar condo, um, that's like a ski condo in Breckenridge and the average annual rent is $75,000, you are not going to be able to cover your debt and your expenses on that. And so you have to figure out like for your budget. So I think that this is where lending comes in, whatever your budget is, what is the maximum return that you could expect for that? If your budget is $500,000, you are going to be limited to a certain number of cities that have those products. Um, I am definitely a single family home investor. I feel like at least in Colorado that those have the highest uh, return as opposed to a condo 
a condo by definition has a lot more saturation, a lot more availability of the same product. So the question was for short-term rentals, do you see them in areas where there's an HOA? Um, in our mountain communities, sometimes. So a lot of times the mountain communities will have a, a small HOA that is in charge of, you know, maintaining a road or something like that. And the metropolitan, almost zero. Zero HOAs will allow for short-term rentals. Some of them also even um, restrict tenants in having rentals at all in certain HOAs. Um, I even had like an HOA try to restrict, like owners could have two dogs, but our tenant could have one dog and like random stuff. I don't know why they watch my tenant's dog pee every day and send pictures of it to me. Like, look at your tenant, they're peeing in the yard. But just something to be attention is you're, you're, if you're buying in those communities, you're buying into the HOA too, which for better or for worse, that's what it is. That's a really good point and a good question because when you're buying short-term rentals, uh, make sure you read those docs, HOA docs. But what was your... And just one more about the HOA. Uh, it's not just legislation could change around that municipality. The HOA all of a sudden could decide we're done with it with short-term rentals. So even if they're allowing them when you buy it, they might not a year later. I Just a thing on HOAs because I've had it so many times recently, but during that due diligence period where you're supposed to get all the docs and everybody gets them all and they kind of just skim through it and they don't pay attention to like HOA looks good. That is the time to look at that HOA, particularly in condominiums where they're going to start. Like, did they have a special assessment coming? That'll completely mess up your investment. If all of a sudden, like I have a property right now, I have an owner with three properties in there. They had a, a hill claim back in 2018 that they were still in legislation with. And I've had multiple people buy in that, like that um, development and they had no idea that there was like this potential legislation on a hail claim. Now it is 2023 and people have to pay a special assessment of over a thousand dollars or plus per, per unit to get it paid off. So I, I think people brush by that due diligence a lot on the HOA. And I think it's actually one of the most important things that can cost you money. I am independent is called hive property management, but, um, H Y V E to make it really complicated. <laughs> yeah. It's like a beehive, but trying to be tricky. So, I can talk to you afterwards. H H Y V E. Yeah, we'll make sure they all give uh, their contact information. Okay, well, I guess we can end it then because you wanted to anyway. <laughs> Why don't we just go down the line here? Final words of wisdom, final thoughts, anything you want to share? And then are you taking clients? What does a client look like for you and your contact info? Okay. Um, I guess final thoughts. Um, I think the biggest thing to be aware of is that is getting very, very, very legislative in our state. We are living in a state that is constantly passing pro-tenant um, legislation, and it can be really good because there, I have worked with slumlords. They do exist. Um, so and we're talking about who I want to work with, not slumlords. I want people who are trying to do, by, do, do right by, they want to have a, a, a house that they would feel okay living in as well. Like if you want to be like, okay living in that house. I don't mean it's the house you want to live in, but it feels okay. Um, and my biggest thing is if I dread picking up the phone and calling that person, they're not going to be a good match for me. I don't have like mental strength to deal with people that I don't 
that are just weird. I know this sounds terrible, but this is just what I mean as a person. I am like, I, I, if I dread you, I'll probably, you know, then they're going to say it's not a good fit. And we're going to pass on that because I just, my life is too short and I want to deal with people that I want to talk to and I'm happy. And that just means we have a good working relationship. You trust me. I trust you. You know that like, we're going to work fine together. I might mess up and I will tell you that when I mess up and we're just going to go on and I'll make it right. But that's just kind of my, my theory on, on clients that I like to work with. Um, so Nicole Castle and Cook Mortgage, um, contact information is 303-882-0550. I have cards and like little Qs. What is it? QVC? QR codes. Um, so you can like download mortgage calculator and in the investment spreadsheet. Um, so you can plug all these numbers in to make sure it's a good return for you. Um, final thoughts. As a lender, people are hesitant to open up to me. Um, they try to hide all the information from me. And then I just find out later and then it's more difficult. Um, so advice would be shoot me straight and I'm going to shoot you straight. Like just tell me what's going on. I'm there to help and protect and make the process as easy as possible. Um, legally, I can close a loan in eight days. So if you need to move fast, we can move just as fast as cash. Oh. I'm Chantel with Good Neighbor Realty. Um, you can find us at www.thegoodneighbors.com. Um, I would say like my final thoughts on short-term rentals are that there's there's just a lot of benefits to them. Obviously, I'm biased. Um, I've been in this space for a long time now, but you know, we talked a lot today about like the high revenue that you can earn, but there's also really amazing tax benefits um, that are specific towards short-term rental because it's not considered a passive investment. And so um yeah, that's a whole nother subject in itself. But there, if you're a high W-2 income earner and you're someone that wants to own a second home where you can visit it, but also has a desire to have an investment property that is going to make some cash flow for you every month and you want to offset some of that um, earned income, short-term rental could be a great solution. Okay, again, I'm Scott Kraft with Pine Financial Group. You can find us at www.pinefinancialgroup.com. And our phone number, if I get this right, is 303-835-4445. And I guess my final thoughts would be, you know, there are so many different ways to make money in real estate. And whether it's short-term midterm, long-term rentals, or if it's fix and flips, or if it's development, there's so many different ways to do it. And you just have to look for what fits your personality, your skill set, and your tolerance level. Um, be that, you know, dealing with people or stress, occasional sleepless nights, those happen as well. But my, I guess my ideal client is anyone who is looking to do any of those. You want to make money in real estate investing? Give me a shout. I would love to help you. I guess that's it. And there was one question that I think we <clears throat> breeze right by and is I think you asked if is a good time to buy or would you still buy? I think I think it was you that asked, is it still time to buy real estate or would you still buy in this current market? I might be just making that up. But I think I heard that. Is now a good time to buy? Yes. 
lots of people are still finding deals. You know, you don't have to purchase a $500,000 house. You can still find condos at two fifty. dollars um, I think right now when borrowers are getting qualified to see what they can purchase and they learn that, you know, it's a much smaller amount than what they have been Googling on Zillow or whatever. They're dreaming of this $600,000, $700,000 house because that's what everyone else is purchasing. You know, that's when I just remind them, this is a team, right? With a real estate agent, um, they are going to be able to help you find those deals. And that's what they're for. I think specifically for real estate investors, I mean, you should be adapting to the market that you're in and there should not be a market where you can't buy. I don't think historically we've had that, but you are going to be buying differently. So from an investor standpoint, it's how do I make the deal work in today's environment? Love um, that answer. And I would just say that what I'm seeing is... <clears throat> as opposed to like last year where there was no inventory, 500 people bidding on one property. Right now you're seeing you can actually try to get more of a deal and you can get some seller concessions and stuff. And you're going to pay that higher interest rate. But the hope is that maybe you could refinance it later. And if you go to try to buy some of these properties, once rates go back down, you're probably going to go back into that same situation with multiple offers everywhere and have a lot of trouble buying a property. So while I can't guarantee rates are when are going to go down or whatever, we none of us know, I would say that when that happens, we're going to have a lot more people back in the market. Mm, I know Castle and Cook Mortgage, when you do a purchase transaction now, you are given a refi coupon so that if the rates drop within three years, you can refinance with no lender fees. So, I mean, it's, oh, it's we're, we're aware of it. it. We know it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I've said this for years and years and years, and I truly believe it. I think that every time is a good time to buy real estate just because it, it, you know, there has never been a time in Denver real estate, specifically Denver, where on year one, a house is worth X 10 years later, it wasn't worth more. You know, there might be ups and downs over the, over the, the years, but long-term it is a, it is an asset that will create generational wealth and I just think as much as you can get, as often as you can get, and just much like you said, figure out how to get it done in the current market environment. I think it's always good. Okay, right before we wrap up, I don't know if we got your contact info or Chantal, I think maybe I missed that, or I don't know if you actually said that when you were doing your little closing. Can you just share your contact quick for YouTube? Sure. Um, Chantal Dwayne with Good Neighbor Realty, www.thegoodneighbors.com. Um, and we have our phone number there as well as our email there. Okay. So it's Rachel, um, a hive property management. So the website is just hive with a Y H Y V E dot property. That's the whole thing. There's no.com. This is as complicated as I could probably make it while making it as simple as I could have. It's hive with a Y dot property. Cool. All right. With that, we're going to end the episode, our very first live episode, the real estate educators podcast. Thank you all for coming. Um, remember, if you came or if you're listening live and you give us a five-star review, you're going to get a copy of my, my manuscript, the new book that's coming out. I think it's going to release Hoping Q3. So it's really close. Manuscript's all the way done. So leave us a five-star review and get that book. And with that, thank you. 
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you did, please be sure to follow and leave us a review. Oh yeah, and tell a friend.